I mean, does Canada, as one of 194 members of the General Assembly of the United Nations, do we not have a feeling, uh, a belief, uh, a duty, an obligation to participate in the tough decisions from time to time? And I would, of course, claim, yes, we do. Thank you for taking time out of your day to listen to the Northern Sentinels podcast. On this, the inaugural episode, I have the chance to speak with one of Canada's most important diplomats of the last half century. Robert Fowler spent almost 40 years in the public service and held many noteworthy roles. Deputy Minister of National Defense, Canada's Ambassador to the United Nations, Ambassador to Italy, Sherpa for the G8 Summit, and the UN Secretary General's Special Envoy to Niger. During his time in Niger, he and fellow Canadian diplomat Louis Gay were kidnapped by Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb and held hostage for 130 days in the Sahara Desert. I cannot think of a better person to launch this podcast. A member of the Order of Canada, an avid outdoorsman, a father, a husband, and a truly great Canadian. Here is my conversation with Robert Fowler. Good morning, Bob. Thank you so much for being on the Northern Sentinels podcast and inviting me into your home. It's a pleasure, Chris. I'm glad you're here, and I look forward to the chat. It uh, it's always nice to start off a uh, start off a discussion with a fresh baked scone and a nice cup of coffee. So uh, hospitality is uh, is fantastic uh, in your household. And actually, one of the the things I was thinking about on the drive over here is you know the the beautiful little historic home you you live in and so how did you how did you come about uh living here and do you you probably know because you're you have a deep knowledge of history where the what the house was originally used for well um if you look out that window behind you you'll see um a series of little right behind you um uh, a series of iron bridges through those windows uh, there and uh, they were built in 1900 um, and that was the way across the Rideau River, and the Governor General of the day would um, ride his carriage to Parliament to open it across those little bridges. And this was this was the countryside here. And in fact, we've dug in the garden here out various instruments um, from from the, the time that this house was owned by a butcher, and he had cattle outside. And oh, really. Uh, <laughs> And uh, he had his butcher shop out front. So the house was built in 1967, in, sorry, 1867, um, by uh, a fellow called MacLeod, who was a mason from Scotland, from the Isle of Skye, in fact, and was brought over here by Thomas Mackay, um, who was the, uh, the Don of Ottawa. And um, he owned breweries and... And bars and um, three lumber mills, I think, and was a very rich guy. And he wanted to build himself a fine house, so he brought a, um, a mason from home. And the first thing the mason did was build himself a house, and that's this is his house. He then went on to build Mackay's house, which is Rideau Hall today, oh, really? um, uh, where the governor general lives. Um, so uh, I would cross these little, when I was a, 
baby foreign service officer over there, the mother house just across those bridges. <laughs> I would um, go for a walk at noon and um, see this little stone house and thought, well, when I grow up, I'd like to live in a house like that. Um, so many years later, um, I'm in my last posting uh, in Rome, and uh, I was called back for a meeting, and the meeting was to take place on Friday afternoon, and at the last moment, I was told, no, it wouldn't be till Monday. So I had the weekend free, and um, I called up a real estate agent, Palavars, and she said, well, you know that house you kind of like? I think it may be available. So I bought it and phoned Mary and said, we bought a house. She said, we have a what? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we had we had enjoyed it from the outside before, but um, not from the inside. It was in pretty poor repair. But um, just before we came back um, from that final posting, we tore out the entire inside. We were allowed to mess with the inside, but not with the outside from heritage purposes. Yeah, of course. And so we've been here about uh, pretty close to 20 years. You did a beautiful job. Well, with thank this. you. Uh, and Ottawa's not, is Ottawa your hometown? Is this where you're originally from? Well, the answer is yes and no, because I was born here. Uh, during the war, my dad was posted here. Uh, he was a civilian, um, but had done lots of government work, and he did a lot of government work throughout his career, although he was a lawyer and a businessman. Uh, but he was working uh, to um, for the Wartime Prices and Trade Board to, to inhibit uh, war speculation. Mm. And so shortly after the war, we moved to Montreal, where I was brought up. Okay. Uh, so your father was part of the war effort at home. Did yeah. you have a sense growing up of service? Was that something that was viewed as important in the in the house, or was this sort of a fleeting thing that your father came, helped with the war effort, and then you moved to Montreal? No, not not fleeting at all. In fact, I, I think I really uh, inherited all my attitudes towards service from him. Um, uh, he uh, he made a very good salary uh, as a business bureaucrat, as it were. He was president of the Canadian Pulp Paper Association, which was then the biggest industry in Canada, um, which paid our school fees and more, uh, which was wonderful. But the jobs he really liked were the public service jobs he did. So he was um, a secretary to Raoul, the Raoul Sirwa Commission that, that set the parameters of the fiscal relationship between the feds and the provinces okay. um, in the 30s. Then he worked uh, throughout the war on the Wartime Prices and Trade Board. Then he did two royal commissions on broadcasting from his position as president of the Palm Paper Association. I'm taking lots of time off to do those things and basically set the parameters of, of the broadcasting milieu in Canada um, till now um, and uh, suggested the creation of the CRTC and um, it, it would be fascinating to talk to him today about um, the internet and um, what impact that has had on broadcasting and um, Canadian content and all that stuff. Mm. So he he loved he loved the idea of public service and he was Tickled when I chose to become a bureaucrat uh, and left university and joined the government. Actually, I then I joined CETA, but six months later I switched and took the foreign service exams. 
I liked CETA. I had worked abroad for CETA, but um, they were a little too missionary for me. Mm. And I, my idea of um, Canada in the world was a little harder edged. So I wanted to join the Foreign Service, and um, but I didn't tell him for two years um, uh, afterwards because I, I initially I was afraid he'd interfere or something. He would, yeah, okay, because um, he knew a lot of people, and I didn't want that. Yeah, <laughs> so so that was that. So why was why was CETA your first sort of uh, your first foray? What was the path to to that? Because your your father wasn't on the development side. No, not at all. Um, he wasn't on the development side, but both he and my mother were, um, internationally interested and concerned. So the world around us all was very wide. We traveled extensively, not, not that imaginatively. I mean, traveled extensively in Europe, but nowhere else. Um, and, um, in the, I, I was at McGill and I didn't like it and I was bored and uncertain and, um, I met an absolutely wonderfully charismatic guy called, a Dominican priest called, uh, Georges-Henri Levesque. And I met him at a cocktail party and he said, what are you doing? And I told him, uh, he said, are you enjoying it? I said, absolutely not. <laughs> and he said, why don't you come and teach at the university I'm setting up in Rwanda? And I said, where is Rwanda? <laughs> um, and he said, well, come and find out. So I did. And um, it sort of changed my life, my 19-year-old my life. Yeah. Um, and it gave me a little sense of purpose and direction, which I desperately needed. Um, and I loved teaching and I liked making what was a very small difference and I thought making that kind of difference was important. So I came back with that in my mind and when I finished at Queen's um, I thought um, more of that would be good and the outfit that did that was CETA. Uh, so I, um, I was recruited as, as a recruitment program for the public service. And once there, you you were offered a, to um, voice your uh, priorities and your interests, but no guarantee that they would meet them. But happily, uh, that worked out. And as I mentioned, I then I then moved to the foreign service. A number of people that I've I've spoken to, Bob, are in interviewed. It's it's interesting how the the culture of the day um, influenced people's decisions, especially their first decisions about what to do professionally. Uh, a, a couple of folks uh, had mentioned about how the uh, the movies of the, the 80s and 90s on Vietnam had influenced them to join the military. Um, or not. Or, or not. <laughs> uh, you know, I'd spoken to, uh, also spoken to somebody else uh, who the, the post-World War II movies mm -hmm. had influenced, mm -hmm. had an influence on him. Was there any culture of the time, uh, the spirit of the age that had influenced that? Because he had a family connection, obviously, and importance of service. Was there anything in society that was, culture was, uh, was driving you in that direction as well? Uh, not, not the sort of influence you mentioned. I mean, sure, I like I liked the war movies, um, but it wasn't 
that at all. I, I think it was the fact, and I'm not exactly sure how it was born, but in the early and mid-60s, um, every single one of my pals at university planned to do something out there, out in the world, as exotic as possible. Um, I spent hours and hours um, planning a drive from Cairo to Cape Town because people did that. <laughs> By the way, I still want to do that, but it, I wouldn't advise anybody to do that, but um, um, I still want to do that. Um, but every every one of my friends immediately upon graduation did something like that. You know, of course, this was exactly the time that um, Jack Kennedy um, asked Americans, um, um, don't ask what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And, and that was the ethos of the time. And um, so all my friends went off and... They worked in, in Africa, they worked in Latin America, they worked throughout Asia, they worked for a year or three. Uh, that was the time that the Company of Young Canadians was born. Um, and people went off to um, Alert Bay in northern Vancouver Island, or what is today none of it, uh, to work in communities that um, needed um, teachers and minor administrators and that sort of thing. And I, literally, I mean, it was, yeah, I guess there was a social pressure because what kind of person didn't do that if everybody else was doing it? But people were, and of course people would meet and share their experiences, and those experiences sounded interesting and exciting and different, and everybody wanted some. And, um, and I... It, it's hard to say very clearly how pervasive that attitude was. Hmm. Um, uh, there were no exceptions. Now, now, when I talk about my friends, obviously that was a pre-selected group. I mean, it wasn't a, a general group in Canadian society, but it certainly was the group that I met at two Eastern Canadian universities, and they all felt the same way. Right. And how was the... Your first experience with both uh, working inside government with um, with CETA, development agency, uh, and also in Africa. Well, it was uh, so in CETA. Um, it was a very new CETA was very new. It, it it used to be the external aid office. It was headed by this incredibly charismatic figure, uh, Maurice Strong. Um, I, who I encountered throughout my life and um, admired him enormously. Uh, when I was at the UN, I, I counted up. Maurice had had 14 assignments at the Assistant Secretary General or above level at the UN. <laughs> he, he for, for a time, not one of those assignments, for a time he was a security guard at the UN. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> He then joined the Merchant Navy and went all over the world and then became a very wealthy man and hmm. um, a very interesting guy. But anyway, he ran he ran the external aid office and, and originally CETA. And, and CETA was pretty entrepreneurial, doing some very exciting big project things in around the world, including in Africa, 
Not all of them were successful by any means, but the idea was there. Um, and, um, I was looking after my, my, my job in CETA was to look after undergraduate medical students. That is, um, third world students who were studying medicine in Canada up to the MD. And, um, I, I think I had 58 or 60 of them. And my job was to keep in touch with them and make sure they were on the right track and um, getting what they needed to do what they were doing and would go back and bring health and um, happiness to their countries um, when they graduated. Um, At the same time, of course, uh, the provincial governments of the universities in which they were studying medicine were lining up to encourage them not to go back and to stay in Canada um, and practice medicine. (laughs) So um, here were two totally contradictory objectives of different parts of Canadian governments um, aimed at these same folks. Many of them stayed. Some of them went back. Um, Mm. But that gave me an inkling of cross-purposes of the Canadian government and dealing with those sorts of things. What what do you do next um, after after CETA? Well, I joined, as I say, the the Foreign Service and um, what they did then um, when they actually had a recruitment program, a very elaborate recruitment program, and the idea was they would give you uh, small, short-term assignments in Ottawa um, to give you a feel for what the Foreign Service is, but it really was an apprenticeship then. I mean, the idea was they wanted to uh, reteach you how to write and how to think, uh, which they did. Um, um, lots of bosses with red pencils who would correct your reports and, and have you do them again and again. Uh, but they taught you to write, which was a very useful skill. Uh, but they didn't give you much responsibility. They moved you about, um, and then they sent you on your first posting. And the idea was that with that time in Ottawa and your first posting, and then you come back to a real job, they would take a look at you and said, is this a good fit for you and for us? And then they would, if it wasn't, encourage you to find something else. And one of your, one of your first jobs as a junior um, bureaucrat diplomat then was down at the UN. Yeah, that was, that was a second one. My first job was, uh, um, Another of my difficult postings, I was sent to Paris, uh, uh, to the embassy in Paris. And it was, sorry, that was funny. I, I had been told I was going to London. And I was, well, that was interesting, but I was going to London. And then the October crisis hit, and um, a London newspaper uh, printed a story on the front page saying, boy, there's no no surprise that there's this kind of problem in Canada. I mean, just take a look at the diplomatic list at the High Commission uh, in London, and you get 32 misters before the first monsieur. Uh, So instantly, headquarters switched me and a pal of mine, uh, who was a monsieur, and sent him to London and me where he was going to Paris, (laughs) Uh, three weeks before departure. Right. So I found myself the most junior person at the embassy in Paris. And uh, the first, my first assignment was sort of EA to the ambassador, who was a wonderful guy, Leo Cadieux, who had just been defense minister. Um, and he was a wonderful mentor and a really interesting guy. 
And then uh, for the next year and a half, I was uh, the vice consul in a separate office looking after Canadians in trouble. And there were lots of those, mostly drug-related, mm. uh, but everything else as well. And um, it was all about finding solutions for these guys in trouble. And uh, I suppose I really got my start. I won't give you the long story, but um, a a charter company went bust, leaving about 800 Canadians um, stranded in Europe, about half of them in, in Paris, the other half split between Belgium and Switzerland. And suddenly around the embassy, there were 400 angry um, Quebecers uh, demanding that the government fix their problem. Well, the government was not in the business of doing that. We would offer short-term assistance, but um, 400 people, we were not going to um, do what they wanted, which is issue them all airline tickets and send them home. Mm-hmm. And it happened the next morning that on my walk to the office, I walked by the Air Canada office, and I know I was here was I a twenty seven year old kid and I dropped into the Air Canada office and said I want to rent two seven oh sevens and and they gulped uh, and said mm, okay um, sign here and I went back to the office and we had four hundred seats leaving the next day we got the four hundred people together and I uh, made them sign a promise to repay divided the cost of these two airplanes by four hundred. Um, charged each of them, uh, put, didn't charge them, put that amount of money on the promise to pay. And then I lifted their passports, gave them temporary passports or just a sheet of paper and said, you get your passport back when you pay. Um, weeks later, uh, in the same week, I got uh, a letter of severe reprimand. <laughs> from the um, head of the passport office who said, under no circumstances do you have any right to lift anybody's passport. This is appalling, and uh, you will hear more. I did hear more because I got a letter from the Deputy Minister of Foreign Affairs saying that was the most brilliant initiative, fantastic, well done, that was terrific. Um, uh, so, um, uh, by the way, 97% of my 400 people paid back. Um, and I don't think in Geneva or Brussels, where they remained for weeks and weeks and weeks, um, I don't think they, um, when they were eventually sent home, more than 25% ever paid back to government. Did, so. you, did you maintain <laughs> that bias to action philosophy throughout your, what, 40 years? Yes. 40-year career? Yes, I did. And I think somewhat based on that. I mean, it, it, yeah. it, it, it kind of worked, you know, um, and, uh, the sky didn't fall and, uh, yeah, it was a little bit risky and, um, there was no way I could begin a discussion about whether this was a good idea and et cetera. Um, uh, so yeah, I guess that's right. Tell me a little bit about your first experience in the United Nations. So I came back to Canada after Paris, and I was doing commercial policy, the first real job, sort of, in front of Paris. I liked that very much. Uh, and I was basically um, setting up the delegation in Geneva for the Tokyo round of multilateral trade negotiations. And I've always been interested in, in trade. I'll never That was the closest I ever came to doing, doing a real trade job. And we were... Um, we'd put our hat in the ring for the, um, for what would be our fourth term on the Security Council in the mid seventies. And I was sent down to New York as a supernumerary to, um, 
to enhance the the delegation for our term on the council. Uh, I was the I was the kind of mid rank guy, and then there was a senior guy who was sort of deputy ambassador, a uh, wonderful fellow called Paul Lapointe, uh, who um, and we were going to, as I say, um, help get us elected uh, and then serve on the council um, for our two year term. Uh, the ambassador was Bill Barton, an absolutely terrific guy, another great mentor. Um, and, uh, so I basically was looking after, um, third world relations on the council, although there were other officers in the mission that did a great deal of third world and very important, um, uh, uh roles on the council. The, the main thrust then, it just happened. We had, um, five NATO members on the council at that time. And it was a particularly uh, delicate time with regard to apartheid in South Africa. Mm. And we wanted to wrest Namibia from the clutches of the apartheid regime in South Africa and bring Namibia to independence. So almost our whole time in the council was spent on that issue. Uh, we failed. Uh, basically, we failed because South Africa never really wanted to do it. Um, and in the crunch, uh, the American and Brit passion for seeing it done was pretty limited. And um, the South Africans, um, with a great deal of CIA support, were uh, fighting the, uh, quote, communists, unquote, in uh, Angola. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that conflict was spilling over into Namibia, where they had also a liberation movement. And all that got um, mixed up and made it uh, unlikely that we would be successful. We were successful uh, many years later, and I was very happy when I was at DND to go over and um, visit with uh, the Canadian um, Peacekeepers Election Observer Team uh, run by uh, General John Arch McGuinness um, and um, watch Namibia come to independence 10 years later. And and to be a little, tie that all together, I was also very pleased 10 years after that when I was back at the UN um, to have played a role to end the 27-year-long civil war in Angola. Um, uh, so that all was somewhat of a piece. It all comes full circle. Yeah, it did, sort of. Uh, yeah. For those listening who may be not familiar with Security Council, yeah. well, why is the Security Council, or what is the Security Council, why is it important, if you believe yeah. it to be, and what's the advantage of having a seat as a non-permanent member. I suppose these days, Chris, we should say, what's the advantage and disadvantage? Um, Well, so uh, the Security Council is the only truly executive body at the UN. Uh, That is, its uh, decisions uh, are not hortatory. Uh, uh, They're not simply nice things to say. Uh, They matter, they do, and they cost. So there are, 
uh, originally when there were, when 51 nations signed uh, the UN Charter in 1945, there were 11 members of the Security Council, and the Security Council's mission is, as the name sounds like, um, to uh, uh, look after threats to international peace and security and to take action accordingly. And uh, the action would be taken by those 11, then 15 members of the council, uh, without reference to uh, the majority, tyrannous or otherwise, uh, of the General Assembly. Uh, so it was designed to be somewhat streamlined, somewhat executive. Um, and it was also designed, which is the biggest criticism of the council, to be able to act without causing a third world war. Thus, the most controversial aspect of the Security Council, which is the veto of the five permanent members. Previous attempts to um, establish this kind of a body um, had failed because there was no veto. There was no um, special consideration for the powerful. Um, and um, before the war, when the Italians had invaded Ethiopia and Somalia, um, the nations uh, could not agree um, on action, and uh, the countries that didn't want to act to stop Italy doing what it was doing just didn't. Um, and that was that, and the whole edifice collapsed. So when they were redesigning the UN, they wanted to design a security apparatus within which the really powerful countries could say no. So, and and that happened. So, I mean, today, um, uh, the Russians are going to say, when anybody tries to stop what the Russians are doing in Ukraine, the Russians say no. Uh, and we all say, isn't that horrible? And isn't what a crazy system that is that that could happen? But then we forget that no country has used its veto more than the United States. Um, mm -hmm. And the United States regularly says no when they feel their interests are being impaired by a proposed action in the Security Council. Now, whether, you know, uh, who are the five members of the uh, five permanent members, i.e., uh, which of course I insist on calling the five non-elected members of the Security Council. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, uh, they, they are, of course, Russia, China, um, uh, uh, Britain, France, and the United States. Um, so that often tends to be Britain, France, and the United States versus Russia and often China. Um, uh, but th those mixes change. Are, are Britain and France today great powers? Um, I would say, hell no. Uh, they would say, we have nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, uh, uh, but they are, any one of those can uh, stop any action in the council with a veto. Uh, France and the, and, and the UK are quite careful to act together. That's not because they always see things the same way, but it's because they realize that their veto justification is pretty weak. And therefore, if they act together, it gives them more authority. Okay. 
so uh, why do countries want to be in the council? Well, A, um, they're going to pay for whatever the council decides anyway, so why not have an influence on the decisions that you're going to pay for? I'll explain that in detail in a moment, or in a little more detail. B, you mentioned service. I mean, does Canada, as one of 194 members of the General Assembly of the United Nations, do we not have a feeling, uh, a belief, uh, a duty, an obligation to participate in the tough decisions from time to time? And I would, of course, claim, yes, we do. Um, when I talked about the pay, uh, this, this drives the Department of Finance absolutely crazy. But when the Security Council decides, say, to send a peacekeeping force to Mali uh, at a billion U.S. dollars a year, at that instant, Canada is responsible for paying 3% of it, uh, whether, whether Canada likes it or not. Whether the Department of Finance likes it or not, they're going to spring for that amount of money. Um, and, you know, uh, Mali was one of 15 peacekeeping operations, um, um, you know, a billion here, a billion there, etc. It's serious money. So uh, we have views on peacekeeping, on uh, our peacekeeping performance used to be terrific. Now it's abysmal. Mm -hmm. um, I think we are... I think we're still a little bit above Zimbabwe, but um, but below Mozambique, something like that, um, in terms of what we actually do out there wearing blue helmets. I appreciate we do other things. But still, uh, in other words, the role of should Canada play a significant role in uh, managing threats to international peace and security? I would say yes. Um now, uh, that means that we have to take controversial decisions that uh, might embarrass the government. Um, it might embarrass the government if we take them. It might embarrass the government if we don't take them. It might embarrass the government if we agree with the United States, and it might embarrass the government if we disagree with the United States. Um, so uh, it's a bit of a two-edged sword, uh, and and in general, given the veto, is it true that the United that the Security Council is really only any good at managing um, less important issues? Yes. Um, if the issue is less important, then the great powers, the permanent members, the unelected members are not going to bother vetoing it. If it's really important, it's important to one or more of those guys, and they're going to um, express their um, views uh, by either watering down whatever is proposed to an acceptable level or scotching it. So one thing we were able to do back in 99-2000, um, I was very anxious to do this from, from what I've already told you, was to stop this terrible civil war in Angola. Angola had a population of 14 million. Uh, Four million had been displaced, uh, over half a million killed. Uh, it was, according to UNICEF, the worst place in the world to be a child. And um, I was convinced that 
most of the participants outside Angola had forgotten why they were fighting in Angola. And they were fighting and, and, and um, encouraging the fight. And it was an appalling situation. Anyway, long answer, I'm sorry. No, it's, it's, <laughs> it's probably a, a good place to sort of maybe skip over a, a chunk of your career, which we can come back to, because I obviously want to get into the, your time at D&D. But, you know, you returned to the, the United Nations in January 95, as you just talked about with Angola and the, uh, the, the Fowler Report. So maybe talk a little bit about, since you gave a, a great sort of overview of the Security Council, about your return in January what you were doing then and, and you know, what that time at the UN looked right. like for your second well, go-around. Well, remember, I, I mean, January 95, mid-90s, the wall had come down, um, peace was at hand, Fukuyama said, it's the end of history. Um, by that, I mean everything, all, everything that had been tried had been tried. Um, uh, all the political systems had been exercised. Um, we knew the world, we knew what was happening, and we could manage it. So much hubris. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, yeah, so much hubris. But we were all, it was the, it was the heyday of peacekeeping. It was, we were everywhere. The UN was everywhere. Um, uh, uh, you know, uh, we were discussing with Russia, Russia's joining of NATO. Um, uh, we were discussing the expansion of NATO. Um, towards the east and and NATO had an ever larger mission kind of have gun will travel to do good in the world uh, lots of optimism lots of hubris lots of silliness anyway at the UN um, it was an exciting time my first job uh, was for the next three years to get elected to the Security Council because I said there were uh, the electorate was 51 when the UN begin, began, and suddenly it was four times that size. Um, uh, the third world was virtually unpresent at the founding of the UN, and now it was the dominant force, or at least the dominant number of votes. And therefore, you had to get votes to get elected to the council. And we had never been uh, not elected. That's not quite true because way at the very beginning, you know, there was a kind of a straw vote and we had to step aside. And, but in terms of real election, and I didn't want to be um, the guy on the, on the quarter deck when the ship sank. Because <laughs> you were our ambassador. I was UN. our ambassador. And they call it permanent representative to the United Nations. And, uh, yeah, I'd been on the council 20 years earlier and I wanted to get elected. It was a three-way race as it usually is. Um, uh, ourselves, the Greeks and the Dutch. And of course, the Greeks were campaigning on the basis that Canada has been there five times and we've never been there and it's our turn now. And the Dutch were saying, wait a minute, we're European and you Europeans bloody well better vote for us. Um, and, um, uh, it was a fairly tough competition. Anyway, we prevailed, uh, in the fall of 98 and we got the highest number of votes. Uh, uh the Dutch came next and two of us went in and the Greeks didn't. Um, and, uh, by then Lloyd actually was our foreign minister and, and Lloyd had outlined, uh, a, a rather elaborate, um, agenda called what he called the uh, human security agenda 
And this was about uh, ensuring that when we talked about peace and stability and security in the world, we were not only talking in kind of Westphalian terms, that is in nation-state terms, um, uh, stopping opposing armies, etc., that we also worried about the civilians caught in the middle and women and children and the least fortunate. And in re Angola, say, uh, I mean, um, the vast bulk of people being killed were civilians uh, caught in the middle and not the opposing factions, the armed factions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, we had, and 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 my particular interest, um, the uh, the non-elected members uh, kind of had had worked out over generations a very sweet deal, whereby um, the unelect the unelected are too busy and too important to actually um, uh, manage the subcommittees of the Security Council, and that would be the job of the elected, the new members who are only there for two years and therefore could never really get smart enough in any of those areas to be of any bother to the important five. Um, so uh, the Americans and the Brits had contrived that Canada would take on uh, the Iraq um, uh, uh, subcommittee of the Security Council. Okay, yeah. And I had decided that this was not going to happen. That the last thing I wanted to do was spend two years at the UN with an American poached on one shoulder and a Brit poached on the other dealing with Iraqi sanctions. And sanctions are only voted by the Security Council. So they are a security measure Mm. short of armed intervention, etc. And were used more and more and uh, Iraqi sanctions, of course, you'll recall that um, we had put sanctions on Saddam. And the result of that were uh, horrible pictures around the world of starving Iraqi kids. Uh, and they were pitiful and terrible. And uh, there was no way that we could tell Saddam that um, um, uh, he, he, he couldn't have what he wanted, but he had to feed the kids. So we had to work out a deal whereby you, you could sell a bit of oil to people who would then buy food to send in to the kids, uh, called the oil well, for food. food. Yeah. Um, and uh, anyway, I said we I did not want that. I would like to do one of the two African things. There were two African subcommittees, one Sierra Leone, which it was clear was Brit, British, yeah. <laughs> and they were going to do it their way, and I didn't want to fight the Brits for two years, or Angola, about which nobody gave a damn. Nobody cared. Where's Angola? Um, th- there was a group of three countries uh, uh, called the Troika that were kind of charged in UN affairs, not just Security Council, but beyond, to manage, look after, keep wise about what was happening in Angola. Uh, It was uh, Russia, the United States, and Portugal. That is, the three countries that had most screwed Angola over history. Mm. And they were were the ones looking after Angola's um, uh, fortunes. Not a good start. Um, And so, uh, anyway, we told the Brits and the Americans and the other, we would not not do Iraq. Uh, so they gave it to the to the 
Dutchman who was elected with us. He just he arrived at Christmas to take his seat on January the first and was really excited about taking on the big, sexy, high-profile UN subcommittee. Having not been around, he didn't know what the land really looked like. He told me six months later that he spent every working moment of the day signing waivers to the um, Iraq sanctions decisions. Right. Not reading, signing thousands of them. Just mired in. Uh, subsequently, you will recall, a whole bunch of people went to jail um, for uh, oil for food scams, I- including uh, a former French ambassador to the UN. Um, uh, so uh, I'm glad we avoided that one. Uh, and And on Angola, as I say, the first thing I did, even before we took our seat January 1st, I went down to Washington, and I asked all the usual suspects one question, which was, um, are you, do you want peace in Angola? Because as I said, the CIA had been working with the South Africans and others to defeat communism in Africa, um, in Angola. It was not communist. It was, indeed, the Russians had strongly supported um, the rebel movements against Portugal back in the 70s, early 70s, um, and provided arms to two of the three warring factions, the Americans to the other warring faction. Um, I I mean, the, the, the ultimate idiocy occurred when the CIA and South African forces actually crossed three-quarters of Angola on the diagonal and were besieging the capital up in the upper left-hand corner. And the the communist government of Angola um, moved their best forces, which were the Cubans, um, to protect their key assets, that is, the refineries of Total BP uh, SO, uh, against the CIA forces coming up from the south. Um, so, I mean, that was, that gave you a real idea of communism and capitalism at war in Africa. Sounds um, like a Hollywood movie series. It was, it was, a, it was indeed a Hollywood movie series. series. So anyway, um, the answer, the answer in Washington basically was when I said, you know, do you, do you want peace in Angola? Was, um, we'll check, you know, um, because the rebel movement, headed by a very charismatic guy called Jonas Savimbi, who was a, a Swiss-trained pediatrician who used to throw witches onto the fire after dinner for entertainment, the witches basically being um, the wives of his colleagues who he had finished with. Um, uh, it was an appallingly brutal war, being fought for reasons nobody really remembered. Um, I mean, that, that, those ideas of capitalism versus communism had dissipated, and it was about power and control. And what's worse, it was the perfect civil war. By that, I mean both sides could have funded it indefinitely. The one side, the government had oil. Um, the uh, Angola pumps um, uh, the same amount of oil as Nigeria, 
with one-tenth of the population, and the other side had diamonds. Um, and um, they both were nourishing their themselves and, and, and the war um, with those revenue streams. Um, so uh, we had to see, try to stop that. Basically, before we got there, the Security Council had passed a series of sanctions against Angola, you know, again, uh, arms, obviously, then financial sanctions, then, then, you know, a whole specific series of commodity sanctions. None of them had any effect whatsoever. So the trick was to see if we could change that. And we did, again, another too long story, but I was very, so we, we actually basically stopped the flow of revenue to the rebel movement. Happily, in in the uh, a couple of years before we got there, the UN had supervised free and fair elections in Angola. Um, the CIA had convinced their guys, uh, the rebels, uh, to to contest the election because they were going to win, uh, but they didn't. Um, and uh, when they didn't, they dug out their arms again and went back to war. Uh, and but we had at least a winner. It, we had somebody who could win and was legitimate, who won an election, and therefore who could be supported. Um, and therefore we had, we had a good guy and a bad guy, and we could all focus on the bad guy and stop the bad guy from buying gas and bullets and, and the war, which we did. And, uh, 14 months later, um, uh, Savimbi was killed. They were defeated in the field. And, um, there has been, peace in Angola ever since. Uh, and uh, Mary and I were invited there for the 10th anniversary of peace, and it was oh, really? uh, quite excited. I bet. Yeah. He, now, you've, you've talked about your yeah. sort of early days in your career before you um, you were in the Foreign Service with SIDA, and you were in Africa, and I was just talking about the, you know, what is, you know, referred to as the Fowler Report. And in and dealing with the ending of the Angola Civil War, and in between there, you were in Department of National Defense, and you also had a number of experiences or significant events dealing with Africa while you were in defense as well. Chris, I did, but we, we I guess we can't leave out very quickly that between um, uh, the uh, UN in the 70s, um, in the late 70s, and, and um, D&D, there was, I, I was briefly, well, not a couple of years, the, the uh, EA to the Undersecretary of Foreign Affairs, Alan Gottlieb, back at home here. And then I went off to the Privy Council office for six years, where I was the foreign policy advisor of... Um, Pierre Trudeau for his last four years, very briefly for John Turner, and then two years for Brian Mulroney. So it was kind of interesting playing that role for liberals and then conservatives. Um, uh, not a natural transition, if you will, um, which had its own challenges. But that was a very exciting job, being the foreign policy advisor. And um, after, after two years with... Uh, Mr. Mulroney, um, uh, I was offered this job as uh, uh, Assistant Deputy Minister for Policy at the Defense Department. 
And um, up till that point, you know, I had uh, I had overseen the work of fourteen people, um, uh, and uh, I was going off to work as the ADM poll, uh, where I would be in charge of six hundred and fifty people. Uh, so that was a that was a difference. Um, I obviously was a little nervous about that, um, but it was an incredibly exciting job. Uh, in that job, um, I did uh, three very different white papers on defense. Um, the first one was with a conservative government onward and upward. Um, um, Canada's going to um, do everything it promised to do and more. The title of it was Challenge and Commitment. We were committed and we were going to meet the challenge and we were going to do wonderful things in the Defense Department. Um, Perrin Beatty was the foreign minister, uh, sorry, the defense minister, and uh, was a wonderful guy to work with. Uh, we uh, uh, we did imaginative stuff like um, deciding we were going to have a dozen nuclear-powered submarines and take charge of the frozen north and be masters of what happened up there um, uh, above the ice and below the ice. And uh, we were going to make that third ocean important and uh, defend our 243,000 kilometers of coastline, um, uh, as well as do what um, NORAD wanted us to do in the air and uh, significantly beef up uh, both regular and reserve forces so that we could be even more effective at home and abroad. Well, um, uh, you know, by then the sun had started to set on the end of history and um, we were back to miserable rivalries and um, everybody wanted the peace dividend and the finance department began to squeeze. And so we issued another white paper just before I left. No, no, in, the, in 92, that was, well, maybe not so much enthusiasm, um, mm-hmm. fewer resources. And by 1994, uh, it was um, a totally different situation. Uh, we were laying off 34,000 people. Um, that was uh, uh, roughly 20,000 civilians and 15,000 military. Uh, scrapped the plans to increase the militia and, and, and reduced regular forces. Uh, scrapped many building programs, closed, I think, 29 bases, and brought our troops home from Europe and closed those bases. So very different circumstances. So, I mean, you, you come out of the Privy Council office and you've, you've worked directly for three prime ministers. So you've got a good sense of how the, the town operates. And, and for those listening yeah. who, uh, who haven't worked in Ottawa, I think and you can tell me whether you share this view or not. I mean, it's its own ecosystem here. It's very its own, much. Very much. It's own thing that unless you've been here, you don't necessarily mm-hmm. understand it. How did you receive your appointment into defense. I thought it was a terrific thing. Um, uh, the defense department was then still important. Not not as important, of course, as it was in 1945. Not as important as it was in 1955. But not unimportant. Um, I'll give you a couple of stories about that. But but I'd been, I know this sounds silly, and but... Um, I'd been a, a, a cadet for four years at 
boarding school, and it was a Black Watch cadet unit. And the Black Watch had been interested in recruiting me at the end of that time and invited me to nice a nice mess in Montreal with lots of silverware. Um, and um, and I wanted to do other things, as we've discussed. But I'd always had a, a vivid interest in defense issues and read extensively of defense matters and cared, and cared about Canada in defense. And it was exactly the kind of thing I wanted to do. I knew I had to leave the central agency, PCO, and go somewhere. If I wanted to progress in my career, I had to go and run something. I wasn't, I didn't have, as I said, in, in foreign affairs, you don't, you don't run a hell of a lot. <laughs> um, uh, and one story in that regard, I, so when I first got to the Defense Department, as a brand new, still quite young ADM, Assistant Deputy Minister, that is, I went around to all the other ADMs, and your listeners may not know that in, in defense headquarters, the Department of Defense has many ADMs. Some of them are military and some of them are civilian. And each military ADM has um, uh, a civilian clone as associate and the, and the other way around. So I had a major general who was my associate um, uh, uh, deputy minister for policy. Um, and so I went around to visit all these guys. And I'm the new boy and... He, who I am and how much I look forward to working with you. So I got the final one was the um, assistant deputy minister in charge of finance. And he was uh, the biggest guy in his tribe. That is among the CFOs mm -hmm. in, in Ottawa, in all the departments, he was the most important because he had the biggest budget. Right. Or what, the government loves to call the biggest discretionary, discretionary. Budget, <laughs> yeah. as if it's discretionary. And so he was quite bored by my spiel about who I was and what I was going to do and where I'd been. And I uh, said, okay, okay. He said, look, our relationship's really simple. You're going to dream up weird schemes, and I'm going to say we can't pay for them. Okay, it's that simple. So I started leaving his office, and he said, wait a minute, wait a minute. He said, you're from foreign affairs, aren't you? And I said, yeah. <laughs> and he said, oh, look, be really careful about telling people around here to do things. And I said, why? And he said, because they will. <laughs> <laughs> and and for, that was the best advice I think I received ever because um, – Chris, you will know that the Thomas Beckett syndrome is alive and well in the Canadian forces and in the Defense Department. I mean, I would come home from, come back to the office from a lunch with some other people in town, you know, where I was trying to promote some interest of defense. And I would get back to my office and I would start kicking the furniture and say, why can't somebody just bang, bang, bang? And I'd go to a meeting or something, and I'd come back, and there'd be four heads lined up, you know, on my office desk. And I would think, oh, my God, I didn't mean that, <laughs> you know. Um, so you, you, you kind of learn to be careful about asking people to do things, but it was awfully nice knowing that they would. Biased. And they did. Yeah. <laughs> and they did. So anyway, uh, so basically my job and my, and then eventually as deputy, uh, so, uh, you know, the, uh, 
the relations between the Deputy Minister of Defense and the and the CDS, the Chief of Defense Staff, are unlike any other departmental management in town. Uh, so it is bicephalic. There are really two heads. 70% of each of their jobs are crystal clear. Mm. But 30% kind of overlap. Um, I knew full well that I, I could not give operational orders to members of the CF. I mean, I had all kinds of members of the CF who worked directly for me, and that's different. But generally, I mean, unlike uh, other places, I, I could not say, uh, you know, um, uh, I, I don't think we should be in Sarajevo. Um, pull our guys out by right. tomorrow. <laughs> Um, right. That was not. I could not say promote this major, um, but I was in charge of what were then um, thirty-five thousand civilians, most of which um, I never saw or were never. They were in all kinds of jobs all over the country, from you know managing parking lots to um, environmental control in various places and base administration, etc. But even that was sort of abstract. Procurement was one of that within that 30% where it crossed over. So one of my ADMs was the uh, a civilian who was ADM material, and he had 14,000 people working for him. And this was um, in a slightly better environment than it pertains today in terms of procurement, but only slightly. There were still lots of other interests in procurement in town. But, um, you know, if you ask the army um, what they needed, they needed everything, um, uh, unlike the unlike the Air Force and the Navy. They, what they wanted didn't come neatly packed in a big steel box so that you could buy simply a certain number of steel boxes and that would be it. Mm -hmm. Lots of bits and pieces. But if you ask the Army what they wanted in terms of a tank, um, they wanted the best tank in the world and lots of them. Um, and uh, I, I, the Army, I was, I was always struck in, in D&D by how bloody civil the different uniformed tribes were to each other. Um, that was not the environment I was brought up in. Um, the environment I was brought up in around the table is um, you tore out the next guy's throat if he was going to mess with what you needed. Not in D&D. &D. Hmm. <laughs> not in the CF. The Army was not going to mess with the Navy's procurement program. And uh, likewise, the Air Force. Um, the, 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 the CDS was not usually going to have a view on whether the turret and the armored personnel carrier should be electric or mechanical. Right. That was the job of the Army. And the Army was going to tear each other's throats out about things like that. But they weren't, they weren't going to, they weren't going to mess up an aircraft procurement, um, because that was theirs. And there was a rough, rough understanding of 553 that basically resources would be allocated, um, five for the Air Force, five for the Army, and three for the Navy. And very roughly speaking, very roughly speaking, those were kind of the understood procurement values. 
Whereas I had views on whether it should be a mechanical or an electric turret, <laughs> which annoyed everybody. <laughs> and, um, and, and I do remember when we were finally going to get the, the Movi GM diesel, um, um, wheeled. The light armored vehicle. Light armored vehicle that became the light armored vehicle, et cetera. Yeah. Um, I literally, a week before we were going to sell, sign the contract, I remember the Army calling me up saying, no, I used this example earlier, it's got to be an electric turret. And you know, we've been through two and a half years of this and just getting there. And basically, my, my thing is, you're going to go with what we've agreed or we're not going to have the vehicle. I mean, it's that simple. Anyway, so that kind of thing would be the crossover between the two. And the job of the deputy minister is basically to manage. I, under the Financial Administration Act, I, I um, carried the can for what was a $13 billion defense budget and whether it was spent properly mm-hmm. um, and uh, whether whatever the Defense Department did, whatever the Defense Department did, conformed with the government's priorities and objectives and of course that might impinge on whether we went to haiti or not or how big a battle group would be sent to afghanistan or latvia or wherever right um and and then uh, on the policy side and then as deputy building that policy into something that what that a conformed and b was doable and achievable and basically was right for Canada. So mm-hmm. that, that is the sort of thing that happened. And you had a couple of pretty, pretty big moments, I guess, or big world events that happened. Uh, and I'm not sure if you were the DM for both Somalia and Rwanda. I was, uh, sorry, I was, yes, I was the DM for both. Um, and in fact, <laughs> I had visited our troops in Belatwin in, in Somalia, uh, in uh, Western Somalia, right hard by the Ethiopian border, um, 10 days before the torture death of Shadain Arun. Um, and you know, kind of seeing the circumstances in which our guys were working in in some detail. And, um, I, uh, I was deeply worried by, um, some aspects of what I saw. Um, of course I didn't see coming anything like that. And when I learned more about what actually had happened and what we did learn, we learned in bits and pieces, slow drip, um, I was appalled by one particular aspect. Maybe I should I should ask you what 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 would I have found the most appalling? I think the thing that just jumps out to my mind is where where did morality, where did being you know good people, where did that go? Because that, for me, is the basis of good leadership, of moral courage. Uh, when you don't have that strong center, 
of ethics and morality, then you tend to, leadership tends to drift and, and not make the decisions that need to be made. That, that's where my mind immediately goes to. Well, I, you nailed it, but you've nailed the higher level. What really shook me, because I, I, I was and remain a big fan of, of the Canadian forces and, and I hope everything I did in over nine years in defense reflected that. For me, it was not the fact that we had two psychotic soldiers who did, as you say, something so morally reprehensible because I, I, I will accept that in certain circumstances, in huge organizations, there will be psychotic behavior from time to time. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we have to plan against it, uh, etc. But I, from an early age, I learned that NCOs were supposed to be the backbone of everything the CF did. Uh, of course, they would take direction from their seniors, and the seniors would set the tone, and that sure as hell did not happen in Somalia. But the, but the fact that this backbone of the army, not one, not two, not three, a whole bunch of them um, allowed this to happen, um, destroyed a significant part of my confidence in uh, the uh, structure and the solidity of the structure of the armed forces. Hmm. Now, no, it wasn't the Navy and it wasn't the Army and it wasn't, uh, sorry, it wasn't the Navy and it wasn't the Air Force. Maybe it wasn't even the Army. And yes, that unit had gone rogue and was a little bit different. And yes, the command structure in the unit, certainly under retrospect, needed work um, and was very different. But it was that backbone that shook me. Mm -hmm. How did that influence your thinking then when you were doing work, you know, in the future with defense, uh, maybe dealing with Rwanda? Uh, how did that, how yeah. did you carry that with you? Well, it certainly made me think, and, and we've got all kinds of fancy words for it today, but it certainly made me think that we needed Uh, to uh, rethink the way we produced NCOs and trained them, and then also the officer corps. In other words, it, I, I could no longer simply sit back and take comfort that um, the instrument is as it should be. Mm. Uh, I believe the instrument was not as it should be. And um, that, that was not my part of ship, as it were. I... I had, I, d I didn't recruit or train or deploy or manage the forces in the field. But um, everything else I did depended on that being done well. And clearly it wasn't. Um, you know, and then you go back and you can find all kinds of other little signs and signals that all was not right. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were lots of them. In retrospect, there were lots of them. Um, and um, some of them, I mean, ought to have put up flares. 
uh, and we were blind to the flares. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so, so it really, it really told me that my kind of pervading confidence in the instrument was not as well placed as I thought it was. Mm-hmm. And I think we all, well, th- those of us that are old mm-hmm. enough to have remember the clearly the the national fallout mm-hmm. from this but do you what was the long-term impact of that on on defense advancing defense issues in the town like how long does that sort of that breach of trust breach of confidence last in the the sort of the canadian political psyche or bureaucratic psyche you know so the military I, I loved collecting military adages as I went there. So the, one of them was I've always loved is uh, all major battles occur at the junction of four maps. Mm-hmm. Um, in other words, in 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 the least desirable place and circumstance. Mm-hmm. And boy, do I know that's true. So at the time that Somalia happened, the defense minister that was making a bid for prime minister. Uh, Kim Campbell was the defense minister, and she had thrown her hat, and she was away in Vancouver at 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 the moment that she was going to be acclaimed as leader of her party and candidate for whenever the next, the next election would be, and and that was, you know, the time that shit was happening in Somalia, and. How do we tell her? Well, we told her staff, which um, in retrospect was the kind of the third string. Um, and uh, whatever they told her is then a matter of great dispute uh, then. But so then there was this endless inquiry into the Smiley affair where all kinds of useful stuff was revealed and all kinds of um, collateral damage that really had absolutely nothing to do with Somalia. I mean, careers were ruined of senior military officers who had nothing to do with Somalia. Mm. But they they gave bad TV. <laughs> they were bad witnesses uh, before the committee. And the committee so clearly had its very own agenda. And all of that contributed to the fallout. Um, but it also made it far too easy for governments from then to now to ignore the needs of the Canadian forces. To, because, as you put it, I mean, the popular view was pretty negative. And therefore, we don't, we can devote resources to other priorities. Um, and, uh, you know, why would you fund an outfit that does that kind of thing? Well, as I say, that kind of thing, there are, I mean, in every armed forces in the world, I mean, the Australians are going through this right now. Um, uh, the Brits have been through it. The Americans have been through it in spades. Um, there are rogue events and, um, we seem to have been incapable of um, 
making the case that this was a rogue event and appropriate action was being taken to ensure it wouldn't continue. Um, I, I regret that. But yes, it certainly did impact the effectiveness of the forces and the forces' ability to make an effective demand for resources. That was the first of two episodes with Robert Fowler. On the second installment, Bob speaks about Rwanda, his final years in the public service, being kidnapped by Al-Qaeda, and some thoughts on national security. You can find information on the UN Security Council, the Somalia Affair, and the Fowler Report on Angola in the show notes. Thanks for listening to the NSP, and goodbye until next time.